Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect Christian faith with the reality of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your host, and we come to you every Friday to discuss, among other things, the contents of our weekly wrap-up post, Another Week Ends, which is kind of like our Christian cosmopolitan grace-infused guide to the contents of the interwebs as we see them for the week. In just a moment, I'll be joined by one of the usual suspects and one that's becoming more usual to discuss the contents of Another Weekend's. But first, I had the distinct pleasure of sitting down in New York City with Rebecca Schiff, who is a wonderful author, most recently of a collection of short stories called The Bed Moved, which has been reviewed incredibly favorably, including in the New York Times. After that, you'll hear our new, a new segment, a conversation with two of our listeners, Kyle and Liz Dupik. It's a profile in our listenership, two listeners that live in Iowa. And then another weekend's. And now my conversation with Rebecca Schiff. All right, I am here with Rebecca Schiff, first time on the Mockingcast, and she is the author of a number of stories, but most recently, The Bed Moved, which is a book of short stories, but it almost has like a memoirish quality to the stories. It's like, I'm wondering, where do you end biographically and characters in the story be, stories begin? It's <laughs> a good question. I think it's the act of... Like when I when I write a story, I'll I'll find kind of the voice of the story, and that voice obviously it comes from me, but it's not. I think of it as separate from me too, um, in a way. And I think that that the I draw a lot on my personal experience, but for some reason, in order to do it, I have to know that the character is made up or is fiction in order to to get to the places I get to. I don't know if it's a buffer or or what, just. A, let, leaves more room for the imagination. So, do you feel like, on some level, like the the by fictionalizing mm. your experience, like you're able to actually be more introspective? Are you? Do you mm. have more access to some of your own story <laughs> when you make it a story about someone else? Yes, I think I think you have different access when you make it. You 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 find out things about yourself you may not have known, um, and that I, that I personally wouldn't be able to access if it was memoir or nonfiction. I don't think I could access that stuff that way because I've tried to write personal essays, and they're they don't they don't go to the same places as the as the fiction about other characters goes to. I don't think. Do are people always asking you this question though? Like people, I mean, you're writing about experiences. Some of which, you know, you, you know, it, like if they were your, are, are people like, hey, which is you? Which is, you know, right. are, are friends and family like, hey. Um, yeah, sometimes people, friends and family, like, like one of my relatives called my mother up to sort of complain because she was like, that didn't really happen to our, to our mother. And, and my mother had to remind her that it was fiction. What was, was the thing that, what part of, of um, there's a story where, um, the, the narrator's grandmother, it says her grandfather left her grandmother. Um, and that didn't really happen. That's fiction. Um, you know, so, so my, my aunt was like, our parents had a good marriage. <laughs> and, um, and, <laughs> and, but, um, but it, but you know, that I think again, that ability, that freedom to make things up is, is, um, it's, I think it's for, important for, 
for a lot of writers. And I think for, for me, I, you know, it's, it even gets confusing, like what happened and what didn't, because sometimes the feeling will be true, but the events will be different. Or sometimes the events will be true, but the feeling will be different. You know, so it's, it doesn't really match up completely. Um, but people, I, I, I accept that people are going to be curious about it, you know, because, because the narrators seem to have a lot in common with me in terms of age and where they are in life. What was it like to, when you saw your book reviewed in the New York Times? <laughs> that was exciting. That was actually on my birthday. Um, wow! Happy so it was, birthday they, to you. Yeah, I know it was a great. It was a great birthday present. And someone was writing. People were writing on my wall, "Happy birthday!" And then one woman wrote, "Like happy birthday!" And congrats on the New York Times review. And I actually thought the review was going to come out the next day. Um, so I was like, so then the happy birthdays turned into congratulations. And I, I was pretty, that was like pretty, you know, dramatic. Cause I think I hadn't, um, I just didn't know what that was going to feel like. So I, I had to go for a, a, a bike ride, um, to kind of get out my, my excitement. <laughs> you have your adrenaline rush. <laughs> adrenaline rush. Adrenaline. I pedaled it. I, I went around Prospect Park once and pedaled it's it. It's a pretty favorable review too. I mean, it's, it, it, yeah. well, it says, um, this is by Dwight Gardner. He says, um, to read the novels and stories of Karen Russell, Sheila Haiti, Rifka Gauchin, Adele Waldman, Alexander Kleeman, uh, Nell Zink, Otessa Mashka, and Rebecca Curtis, among others, the snows were a golden age of young female writers who, when they wish to be, are powerfully, cleansingly, and sometimes bodily funny. And then you're mentioned, and then that frames like, you know, he's putting you in, 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 as one of the stars in the constellation of the golden age of young female writers. That's going to feel great. Um, it does. <laughs> it feels really good. And to be, to be in the company of, of those other writers, some of whom I, I've been, you know, reading for a number of years and really respect and admire, um, felt really good. Where did you grow up? Long Island. Long Island, Strong Island. <laughs> Strong Island. <laughs> I cleaned pools one summer with like my, yeah. one of my college roommates in Long Island. Where? Uh, it was out like, uh, near Stony Brook. Stony Brook. Yeah. We used to have to do, um, science re, I was in a science research class in, high school and we used to have to do a lot of our research in the Stony Brook library. Um, so I remember going there and being really confused by the science articles because they were aimed at real scientists. You know, they were professional articles and they were just having high school kids, you know, sort of do it to prove how smart they were. But I, well, I, I didn't understand most of what I was reading because it was, it was for people who had studied, you know, who had studied science, um, and what, like, what was your home life like growing up? I mean, was it kind of suburban? I mean, you kind of, mm -hmm. you have, you, you, you do a good job at several short stories, like kind of narrating. It seems like suburban coming of age in, mm -hmm. in, in sort of the post, you know, mm -hmm. coming of age after George W. Bush in light of the internet. Kind of this whole, <laughs> there's this whole kind of like constellation of events. Like, and you kind of, you seem to narrate that in some of the stories. Um, yes, I grew up, it was a pretty standard, as far as I know, suburban, childhood. Um, and then there's this rupture because 9-11 in my life, in real life, happened um, when I just graduated from college. Um, and I'd had a personal rupture, which is that my father had died. And so our family was, you know, having, it was in a crisis. And then, then this, then the nation was in a crisis. So it was kind of like the end of, um, the end of innocence for me personally. And then it kind of, it was like confusing because everyone was like the end of innocence for all of us. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, but you know, until, until that, until I lost my father, um, it, it would have, I think it's event, I mean, childhood is eventful in that you're in terms of like what's happening in your consciousness, you yeah. know, but, yeah. but it was a pretty, you know, safe and, and comfortable childhood. 
So you you had you you had enough money that you weren't sort of wondering where the next meal was coming from. No, no, there was there was that was not a worry um, for you know for my for the generation this generation in my family you know because of um, a lot of factors but assimilation and then sending people to med school and things like that got. It's interesting though. Do you feel like what happens like uh, that even it's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs like. Mm. If even if you if but base your your needs are met in Western culture, mm. there's still anxiety, right? It's just it's just displaced to like meaning and work and mm. does my life matter anyway? I mean, mm. it seems like you spent a lot of time in the stories writing about that, about sort of angsty stuff that that mm. you know it, it, that is can, is just as uh, debilitating sometimes existentially as more when bit more basic needs aren't met. You know, I mean, I don't I don't really know what it's like to you know like someone who's living in a country that's being bombed or you know where they're really worried about their safety or they're worried about food or you know i've never had that experience so i only know what it's like you know to have those in terms of the hierarchy to have those basic needs met and then from there there are a lot of other actually i took this um i took a workshop (laughs) called i don't know if you've ever heard of this this guy um forget his name he wrote this book called Nonviolent communication and there's like a needs Mm. There's like it's really into feelings and needs and kind of how to communicate without um, blaming people or judging them and sort of like figure out which needs are being met and which needs are not being met. And when I went to this workshop, someone asked about the hierarchy of needs because a lot of the needs on the list that they give you are like the need for you know intimacy and the need for um, connection and all those kinds of needs and and shelter. There's like a little like shelter you know, safety like section, but it's very, it doesn't put them in a hierarchy. It just kind of puts them along with all the others. Um, so it's sort of interesting to, um, it makes me wonder like, you know, that the needs that are met, that even if your needs or basic needs aren't being met, if the other needs are still present, you know, like people might be hungry, but still need intimacy or I don't know. I'm just thinking about that. Yeah. Yeah. Or it's funny because like eat, pray, love, you know, she talks about how, like <laughs> yeah. you know, that she's d- doing like work, counseling work with people that were like refugees on a boat mm-hmm. and th- thinking they're going to be talking all this traumatic stuff. And they're talking about like broken hardness and love mm-hmm. and, you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, and I, mm-hmm. is this sort of person going to love me? We had this connection <laughs> on the boat. Right. So it's this, yeah. I mean, there's only so many dimensions to the human story, right? Right. And like, you know, I think that in the, you know, in the, the stories where something really tragic does happen, then, you know, that there's someone dies, everyone is still, um, you know, people are still jockeying for status and they're still um, worried about how they seem or how they appear. You know, it, it's kind of like that stuff doesn't go away, even if you're even if you're in in a more heightened kind of or difficult moment. Yeah, yeah. You you write in one of the stories that uh, how you kind of uh, perpetually one the character uh, you know goes back home to fix her mother's computer perennially, and <laughs> she's lost her husband. Uh, and you tell a story about and fixing you know in fixing the computer, like you come across the history cache and like porn that the dad had looked at, which is, and it was sort of like, I don't know, boxing women porn or something, something really, yeah, yeah. really like eccentric. And you have this great line that, you know, all guys, all guys look at porn, but you know, for, for, for some, at this moment, you know, his darkness came up against my darkness or something it, to mm-hmm. that effect. Um, I thought that was a really incredibly human moment. Uh, because I mean, I think it's really hard to see for for children to see parents as human, and parents mm-hmm. to see their children as real human. Like you know, there's this, this kind of weird all mm-hmm. sorts of transference and things that go yeah, on. That is hard. So I mean, in that moment, it's like the 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 character's father 
became such a three-dimensional human to her. Right. Well, she's forced to, she's forced to confront something that makes her uncomfortable. But then like in confronting it, she can, she kind of gets, she does, she's looking for things on the computer, like to learn more about him or kind of connect with him. And she doesn't find what she's looking for. She thinks, but then in another way she does because she, she does. And I think that's what happens. If you lose a parent young, in some ways you don't get to like, you know, now my mother, I'm an adult and I see my mother and she's an adult and I, I see her differently than I did when I was a child. But when you lose a parent young, you don't always get that to, to see them the way an adult would see them or see them as a person. And I think that's something that's like a longing that we have, you know, is to know our parents or I always had it even when I was a kid. Um, like I always wanted to know about their childhood or like sort of to know them. I don't know if you had that wanted to like, we're curious about your parents that way, but yeah, I think, I mean, part of it is we want to know our origins, right? Like in, right. And their origins are part of our origins. Right. So it's kind of the primal <laughs> sort of thing. Yeah. Okay. I, I th- this the genre you write you it, you write in here in one review I think it's called slut lit. Okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. Now that seems so like strange. I mean, you write about sex. Uh, mm. and sex is a part of some young adults' lives and metro areas. <laughs> but right, right. It's, it's sort of like Amy Schumer says. You know, I'm called a sex comic, and whereas a guy can just kind of pull out his genitals on stage and look, oh, that's brilliant. That's a comic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah it's a comic. So, right. Is, there, is this kind of is there like a mm. sexist thing? Like, I mean, is there a weird double standard or something? Like, why? I mean, I didn't. I, I in reading your book of stories, it didn't seem to me that. That was a fitting title for the genre. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Um, I think that I do think there's a, there is a double standard, somewhat. You know that when still when women talk frankly or openly about sex, that it's kind of like, whoa, she's like, look at her. You know, there's a little bit of um, a little bit of yes, yeah, calling her a sex comic. Where it's really this. I think that because people are still getting used to this. Because equality, um, there, there had, there were great strides made in, made in women's equality and, you know, before in the, in the sixties and seventies and I was born in 79. So, you know, that's going to affect the way that like an Amy Schumer and a Louis C.K. may have very similar material at this point. And people are still kind of surprised by that, but they shouldn't be because, um, because this is, this is the impact of it, you know, of, of, of those, um, of feminism kind of is that kids female children grew up kind of being treated more the same way and being able to talk about, you know, be open in the same way. So I didn't notice while I was writing, like, oh, I'm writing this book that has so much sex in it. Um, I knew it would be, I knew people would notice it though. Like I was aware of that, but I think I didn't think like I'm doing this on purpose to make a point. You know, it's just what it's just, I just thought I was writing about life, I guess. Do you like, okay. So is it, have, do you, are, do you, are you romantic? Do you have a boyfriend, partner, or significant? A boyfriend. So, okay. So did you have one when he wrote, when you were writing this book? Is it? Um, some of the time I had one and then some of the time I didn't because it took, you know, it took a few years. Cause I'm just imagining like, like, you know, uh, is romantic part? Am I in this or what is it? You know, like or like ex boyfriends? Like, is this guy? Is this is this? Uh, you know, is this is any of this based on me? Kind of thing. Um, you know, I have had I've had guys I've dated say they're a little afraid <laughs> that they're going to show up. Yeah, expose tell all. Um, you know, and I think that's normal. You know, to be to be kind of ner- nervous, but I also think that. Again, because so much is filtered through the writer's like lens and through their whole process that by the end, it's not, you know, it's not, it's words on a page. And so even if, even if a a feeling or a a detail comes 
from somewhere recognizable. Um, I would hope that my partner felt, you know, secure enough in, in our actual real live relationship. Like probably the things that, you know, I actually say to them as me matter are what matter more to me than whatever this my you know, the part of my brain that makes fiction matters in terms of our actual relationship. Are any of your exes like, why isn't there more of me in there? (laughs) Well, that's interesting. It's like some people like I've heard that happen to other writers that people get upset when they don't show up, when they don't recognize themselves, you know? So, so it's a, it's a really, it's a really sort of fine line to walk because, and people will always say like, you should write about that. Like if I tell them, you know, if I'm telling a story like at a, a party or something. And I can't just do, I can't just like write something because it sounds like a good story when I tell it. It, it, it comes from a place that it doesn't, you know, isn't as clear as that. Uh, yeah. You, do you think that like, you know, I, with, with like Tinder and mm. just a number of online dating, do you mm. feel like there's, there's a, a sense in which, uh, people are just more casual, not just with sexuality, but just with like, I have so many female friends who are like in their thirties who are dating and, and <laughs> like, like, it, you know, more female dating. friends than male friends. What? Uh, dating. Yeah. I probably, I feel I like think, there's more. Yeah. I think I do. I think I actually do. Why but, is that? I yeah. don't know. I think it's, it's, most of my male friends, or, they're in, or a lot are of them in are relations. They're, yeah. they're in relationships. Are there just more women? Like, I don't know. What is, what's going on? Yeah. Because I, I, I noticed that too. But the whole like ghosting phenomena. Where, like, okay. A guy will like go, go on a couple dates with them. They'll be sexually intimate and then they're just gone. Like, and there's no, and I wonder, like, is it, like, I wonder how many guys, like, guys, they're really, like, players, right? Before Tinder, like, I felt like you had to have a kind of confidence, you had to be, you know, you had to be, you had to have a rap, you had to be, you have to, but now it seems like Hmm. there's a sort of technical precision to it. you don't have to fear rejection because you swipe, swipe, and through the swiping mm-hmm. algorithms, everything mm-hmm. finally. So like, I feel like people are just, uh, it, like, there's more, it almost seems like there's more, uh, like Martin Buber, you know, Jewish philosopher, the I thou is how you should be, you know, and, and, mm-hmm. but in the worst kind of re- relationships are I it, where somebody treats you like an object. Uh. And do you think that like some of the technology, you know, the, the intimizing our technology and technologizing our intimacy is like, is, is making dating like a, a, a more of a minefield. I mean, I didn't, I hadn't really dated much before the technology, you know, like I had, I kind of, I remember there was nerve.com, you know, and, and I was pretty young when that, when I, I got to New York and that already existed. Um, so I, it's, it's definitely the swiping is relatively new, you know, it's a few years old. Um, and I think it's faster. Like, I think everything's kind of moving faster, but it kind of goes, um, I think ever, I think the good thing about it in some ways that people aren't as afraid of rejection, that's good because a lot of times insecurities and fears of rejection will cause people to behave sort of badly. Yeah. So if they feel like, okay, I can go back online and like find somebody else, like they might be able to handle people, men and women might be able to handle rejection better. Though I know people get upset when they go, ghosting is pretty traumatic i think being ghosted on um and so people still get upset about yeah, that it just but happens so I mean, it amazes <laughs> me like how, how often it happens yeah yeah and, and or like you know people saying like you know I, I had a friend who like this guy would leave her house and then mm. she's checking his tinder his location or his distance mm. and she knows where he lives he lives like a half mile from her and then he's t- and all of a sudden he's six miles away so like you know i mean it's just, uh, it's just <laughs> Wait, she can see his location she could tell how far he was it says like because oh. it like somehow oh. like there's a there's a so oh wow yeah yeah, I mean it's it's kind of it's kind of crazy. Um, I once got an apology from someone who had I guess rejected me after we'd you know dated a little bit, and and he was like I it was like a Martin Buber. It's like I didn't treat you like a thou. 
Oh, wow. What a nice guy. <laughs> well, kind of. I think he wanted to be seen as a nice guy. What a nice image that he cultivated. Yeah, he cultivated this image. I mean, I think he had... he. He felt guilty because he had, um, he hadn't treated me that well. I mean, he didn't do anything horrible, but he was, you know, he was a little bit, he was a little careless with my feelings. And then he, then he wrote this like long Martin Buber-esque kind of like apology. And I was like, I still was like, go to hell. Like, I don't care now. But, um, <laughs> but then I felt bad. I was like, all right, he's trying. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll try to accept that apology. Cause I think for, forgiving being able to forgive people and it is a big is a big step in kind of growing in your romantic life you know and just kind of moving on and saying okay like that happened that was bad but i'm not going to internalize it and you know I, I think that that takes a lot that's the big challenge of it almost more than finding someone else oh absolutely i think that the, the kind of love it takes to connect you and the kind of love it takes to stay connected are really mm-hmm. different because mm-hmm. it is the forgiving kind of love mm-hmm. It's interesting. There's a theologian, Miroslav Volf, who says that, you know, basically in human, uh, in human exchange, that like, you know, basically if I, if I, um, take something, stealing, you know, without regard, that's like theft, you know, like, you know, right. that's a violation. And then most of life is actually li- lived of exchange where, you know, hey, you might get a good deal. I'll give you 10 bucks for this service or 20. And maybe, you know, but, mm-hmm. but it, even if you negotiate a good deal, it's not stealing. There's a reciprocity there. Mm-hmm. And a gift is something where it's unilateral and nothing in return. You know? mm-hmm. And he says that in the level of interpersonal relationships, revenge is like theft. So mm-hmm. you've hurt me and I'm going to hurt you with no regard for, uh, you know, how the, the measure, you know, mm-hmm. relatively giving back and taking. And he thinks that like justice is, is roughly exchange and then forgiveness is a gift. Mm, I like that a lot. Yeah. Forgiveness is a gift. Justice is roughly exchanged, but forgiveness is a gift. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. That's really, that's re- so, so revenge is theft. Justice is, is an exchange and yeah. forgiveness is a gift. a gift. Yeah. That's, I think that's, I think that's beautiful. I like and that. I, don't you think that we are, are like our best selves mm. and, and, and our best, and best to our lovers when they've forgiven us. Like there's, mm. when they treat us, mm. there's this old reformation, 16th century refuge, um, mm. Reformation term, imputation. And it's mm-hmm. only ever used negatively now, right? Mm. Like you imputed bad motives to me. Right, right, but right. But there's a positive use. Like it's in, like in Les Miserables where the priest mm-hmm. imputes to Jean Valjean a better reputation than he has and says, you know, mm-hmm. I didn't, I didn't take, I told him to take the candlesticks. Mm-hmm. And he creates a new man by treating him as better than he is. Ah, uh, I feel like that's true with teaching. Like if mm. you, te- if you treat the student like, Almost like they're you, you know, you, like you expect the best from them. You, you you make them into a better student. And if you expect them to be a bad student, you make them into that student. And I think that it's probably true in relationships too. Like if you expect your partner to fail you, you know, they they probably will. Or like yeah. if you impute that to them. And I also think if you forgive yourself, you're going to treat other people better. It's it's so there's a lot of um a lot of this. There's a lot that goes into this thing that you're talking about. Can, so, can I ask you to read something from your book? First? Absolutely. Uh, it's it's uh, it was my it was one of my favorite parts of the book. You write you conclude it with this beautiful two page story called "Write What You Know." <laughs> okay. So, do you read it? <laughs> sure. Our listeners can't see; they're holding a microphone, so it okay. might be. A, 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 I don't know if it's okay. agility wise. There we go. Okay. All right, you got it. Write what you know. I only know about parent death and sluttiness. What else do I know? I know about the psychology of Jewish people who have assimilated who dye their hair, who worry about bizarrely specific allergies. Does the migrob have soy sauce? The migrob is fine. Melissa had it last time, and she was fine. I know about liberal guilt and sexual guilt, and taking liberties sexually, 
even though I haven't actually done any of the liberties I know about, except once something with a very small dildo, it hardly counts. I know about unrequited love and once love that was requited, but not for very long. I know about baseball. It didn't take that long to learn it. I know about relief pitchers and which guy switch hits. When guys know other guys, they know something I'm left out of. Guys know about towels. Towels are a big part of how they know each other. In the locker rooms where they only use each other's last names. The first name is what the girlfriend calls them when she calls them. She's got a ponytail. She's got boots. She's got chlamydia. No, she doesn't got chlamydia. She's got a mom and a dad and a bathroom at home with a rug on the toilet seat. She's got a ponytail. I don't know about the rug on the toilet seat. Jewish people who have assimilated rarely keep rugs there. They won't hang a flag. They will get a tiny Christmas tree with irony or a bigger Christmas tree if they are more serious about assimilating and less serious about irony. I know a girl whose parents ruined her. They had a tree. They even had a wreath. My friend knew how to play the piano and how not to eat any meal except breakfast. And eventually she knew how to trade stocks and then how to give up trading to start a food blog for former anorexics with recipes. And then I didn't know her anymore. I know how to lose a friend for not caring enough about Unitarian Universalism and how to lose a friend for not attending her adult bat mitzvah and how to lose a friend for telling her to dump her Catholic boyfriend, not because I abhor Catholicism or think it is the worst religion, but because he is dumb. I know how to get that friend back by telling her it's none of my business if she wants to marry a dumb man, leaving out the word dumb, to get her back by apologizing for pretending to know things I can't know, saying that only the two people inside a thing can know can know how dumb each other are, to get her back by waiting until she knows what I know and I can stop pretending I don't. That's beautiful. Thank you. Uh, you're a really great writer. Oh, thank uh, you. Your prose is just really elegant. Um, thank you for reading. You have this You have this uh, story in, in the book about this guy with cancer who's like a cancer blogger. Mm-hmm. And the main character of the story is sort of like, this is so weird. And like, he's got... He's smoking his cancer weed for the pain and we had the cancer bracelets and we're liking and his whole life, his whole life is on his blog. And you're talking about how like, how sort of the, the world wide web, right? It becomes just a, a web. It's not world. It's not wide. It's actually more insular and it's just a web that kind of ropes us in. <laughs> and it's this kind of like, you have these self curated pictures of ourselves we put in social right, media. Right, right, right. And it's, it's, it's like, there's, there's, it's almost like when people say, oh, there's more, you know, there's, there's more to the, that person that meets the eye. It's almost becoming like, no, there's probably less to that person. <laughs> right. Cause they're, they, the eye. At least it's a good line. Yeah. <laughs> there's less to that person. That meets the eye. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny because, you know, this, this past in New York, it's been so hot and gross the last couple of weeks, I think in Philly too. Oh gosh. Yeah. yeah. It's an so, it's and, an and you know, people are posting these pictures like on Instagram, you know, they're in Maine and they're like in Europe and they're just like all these beautiful places. And I just feel like it's, I just, and I like finally last night I took a beautiful picture. There was a pretty sunset. I was like, Brooklyn's pretty too. Like I want, like I sort of, <laughs> but, but I haven't been feeling that way at all about it. I've been feeling really like down on it because the weather's been bad. So it's just interesting that I curated it and like made it look good for people who aren't here, you know? And, and I thought about that. What if I just took a picture of like garbage night, you know? <laughs> right, right, right. This is my real life, my unfiltered life. It's my so, life. what will you write next? What are you working on? I'm working on new stories. Um, so hopefully they'll become another collection. Um, and you know, one day I hope to have a longer work, but um, 
but I don't know what it will be yet. Well, when you when you come out with a new collection of stories, will you come back on the podcast? Absolutely, absolutely. It's great being here. Thank you so much, for, <laughs> Rebecca Schiff. And this and the book is "The Bed Moved." It's a great book of short stories and please listeners go out buy it click on amazon you can have it in like a day uh, and you won't regret it i'm broke but i'm happy i'm poor but i'm kind i'm short but i'm healthy yeah i'm high but i'm grounded i'm sane but i'm overwhelmed I'm lost, but I'm hopeful. Be there, and what it all comes down to is that everything's gonna be fine, fine, fine. 'Cause I've got one hand in my pocket, and the other one is giving a high five. Kyle, Liz, thank you so much for your generous gift. It blows me away that you did that. It seems simple. Uh, I don't know. I feel like every feel like every time we listen to like uh, a radio station that's having a pledge drive, I always feel a little bit guilty that I should give money because I'm sucking life out of them. Um, but admittedly, I never felt that way with Mockingbird. It just felt like it. Uh, yeah, we really did benefit from it, so it felt pretty easy. And there's nothing like hearing, which is something I stole from Howard Stern, but like, there's nothing like, I'm actually not good at math. So like when Sarah's like, I can't believe you're doing the math on the air. <laughs> like I was actually like, wait, wait, wait. So I added the calculator sound effects later. Cause I was like, wait, wait, carry the 10. What is that? How did you guys meet? Oh, uh, we met in college. Sure. We which was, yeah. Really- what college? There's a small private school called Univista University in Iowa. Univista sounds like it should be in Florida or Southern California. Univista and Iowa. Did they lure you in with like, okay, here's Univista. There's a lovely pool. They do have a lake. There, yeah, it's in the town of Storm Lake, so there's a lake. How did you guys meet? Like, like in like at the school? Like, was it a baseball game, cafeteria? It was actually at a bar. Yeah. Yeah. Oh boy, was there drinking allowed? <laughs> it- well, were you under 21? We're under 21. We both were, yeah. Oh, boy, scandalous. Oh, bo- this is, hey, Christian erotica novelists. <laughs> Here it is. Here's the story. Yeah. Um, so one of my friends, uh, we were at the bar that she worked at. And so I was talking to her and Kyle was uh, there with his baseball buddies because he actually never drank um, at all. Me neither. Yeah. So, so he it was kind of whenever people hear the story of us meeting at a bar, they're always like, "Wow, I don't picture that at all." He was the, he might not have been the designated hitter, but he was a reliable designated driver. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and they had popcorn there, free. So I love popcorn. Yeah, yeah. So what did you say? Like, who approached whom? T- whom well, was, is it? Who approached whom? Is that grammatically? Who? What's the subject and object? Who approached whom? That's it. Uh, yes, that is correct. <laughs> um, so I was sitting next to him at the bar, and he kept slamming his coke down on the table, and it was spilling onto my arm. And I said, "You should be more careful with your drink." And then he started talking to me. So. I, I, I slamming is maybe too strong of a word. You were. Setting it down and the bubbles were just kind of effervescing. <laughs> it's a nicer way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I like effervescence. Yeah. 
So, okay, so you get married sometime after that? Like, oh, no, more than that. Really? Yeah, because we were sophomores then. I was sophomores. We didn't date right away. We went on a fantastic date at the end of our sophomore year. Uh, We were at Dairy Queen, and we were there for like two or three hours. It was awesome, but I think both of us were going through stuff as sophomores that uh, just led us to not reconnect during the summer. Um, We actually went on that date like two... When did we graduate? We graduated in 2011. Seven was high school, so 2008, 2009? Yep. Yeah. 2009. 2009. Uh, <laughs> um, well... You went to Africa. That I was part of it. Yeah, I took a biology trip to Africa. Um, and then... So then my friends that were also baseball girlfriends who knew about Kyle didn't think that we would get along really well. And to be fair to them, the things that Kyle was working through that summer. What were you working through, Kyle? Um, you know, long story short, I had been voted a captain after my freshman year on the baseball team. We were a really bad team. And so um, I, I just kind of always been that way, loud, obnoxious. And so it was easy to be a leader on a team that wasn't very good when I was loud and obnoxious. But my sophomore year, we were a little bit more successful. And... I was not revoted as a captain, um, and that left a kind of a bitter taste in my mouth. And then I played baseball that summer with some of my teammates, and just had a like um, you know looking back on it, a lot of it, a lot of it is purely just my attitude, but um, but just had some really tough relationships with teammates, and decided to leave the summer team, and strongly considered transferring from that university to play baseball at a different university. Yeah, looking back, I wouldn't have used the language or the terminology, but I was certainly a lot of people. You know, I just, I was the voice of judgment. I was the voice of the one who just didn't really understand why people didn't work as hard as I did um, and didn't ever really understand um, people's backgrounds, where they came from, had no compassion or empathy to really think about them. And so um, that created just an incredible amount of friction with my teammates. And, uh, and because of that, I thought about transferring and she didn't have much interest in actually listening to that uh, at that point, <laughs> which is probably- She helps you take yourself less seriously. Sounds like, yeah, or yeah. maybe the best parts of yourself more seriously. Mm. Where yeah. do you guys go to church? That's, <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. We just moved, so we are currently church shopping. So you're up for grabs, okay? So basically, this is like the Bachelor. Ooh, yeah, yeah. Kyle and and Liz Dupic. What like if I was? What city is this again in Iowa? Des Moines. You're in Des Moines, so you're in the you're in the capital. Yeah. So, okay, so if I'm a pastor in Des Moines, and we're going to tweet this tomorrow at hashtag Des Moines recruit, every church is going to call you. How do I sell? Like, how do, like, if I'm a pastor looking to win you all over, and I would guess, like, you're probably decent people, givers, church participants. I mean, you've been generous to Mockingbird. <laughs> don't give, t- don't give too much to the church because we have to fund this podcast, but it give a little something. So how would you like make your pitch as the bachelor bachelorette mm. for church? Like what would win you over? Like if you walked into a church and you experienced or saw X, what would that be? Ooh. You know, this, this is part of why we're giving to mocking the mocking cast, right? Like is because it was, it's been so the, 
organization on the whole has been so good for us. Mm-hmm. So law gospel distinction, right? Like not, a, I don't know if that's the right way to phrase it, but like it's, I, I think it's consistently preaching grace. Yeah. And not. So if there's a consistent preacher of grace out there, like I feel like it, it would not be legitimate for me to baptize your newborn. What's her name again? Elise. Elise. I, I like as mocking, but if the church lands you, I will come out and do the baptism. I'm really ordained. I'm, I'm, I baptize people all the time. I will come out to Des Moines. If the church preaches grace mm. and you guys join, and I will do it not on your dime. Like if you guys land in a church that preaches grace, I'll do it on Mockingbird's dime. Mm. I'll come out there if you want. And I do a great baptism. I do a great wedding too, but you're already married. Yeah. Uh, but if you have siblings or friends that need married, I'm good. But I will come out there if a church lands you and you want. Here's I don't know if you guys are even believing in infant baptism. Here, but here's, that's the thing. Here's the funny thing. We're that is probably a point. It's funny actually to even hear you talk about you know you know some of the people that you interact with politically and and you even couching your language in you know that doesn't make us more Christian. Um, here in the Midwest, Midwest is just the opposite. You know, if you don't fall on the other side of where you guys fall, um, then you have to figure out why you're, um, it's, it's just funny to hear the op, you know, to hear that the East Coast and Midwest falls on different sides of the political spectrum and both have to try to explain why that doesn't make them more Christian. Um, and I think in this, in a similar way. That's um, lovely. How long yeah. have you been married? Four, four years. Four years. Four years. Gosh, you guys give me hope for reality. <laughs> Like, I feel like you guys are, you're a lovely couple. Yeah. Sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, we appreciate that. So is there anything, like, uh, I've never done the, the uh, listener preview, like the listener profile. This is, you are the first, and you've, you're you like Kim Kardashian, <laughs> not in the scandal, sorry, but you're going to break the thing. Like, you're a tough act to follow. Is there anything you guys want to, like, ask or say? Like, I feel like, is there something you want to express to the mocking world or like ask of, I guess I speak in this moment from Mockingbird. You know, I, I actually didn't like Mockingbird when I first listened to you guys. Um, mostly because I'm not artistic and don't, yeah, you guys just have a different view on that stuff that I've never, that I never saw. And so I actually, um, I think Tully and Trevigian, he mentioned you guys one time um, and then his situation kind of happened and I didn't have anybody who preached grace all the time to listen to. And so we started to listen to Mockingbird. And the first, the first one, the first, uh, what was it? The first, um, mocking pulpit that we listened to was what the, is a Jackson Pollock. that's great yeah Yeah. it was so good yeah um and i feel like that in a big way um yeah i think that liz would probably come from a lot more of a background of probably where you guys come from and um more of a main line and more of a progressive appeal and i grew up in a very moralistic uh, background and so incredibly conservative and um, all the negative evangelical notions that you know of, I've probably been associated with at one time. And so Kyle, what's the difference in conservative and incredibly conservative? Like, is it really incredible? Like, would I not believe it? Like, yeah. And that sounds probably. very conservative. I, there, think- I mean, there were definitely <laughs> times when I, when he would say something that he believes and I was like, 
No. <laughs> I think I think it's blindness. It's not the way the world is. Right? Kyle. I think that I think a conservative person probably lands there but has the ability to see that mm-hmm. that's not the greatest answer, you know, or, to everything or can at least see somebody else's point of view. Right. I think somebody who's incredibly conservative just is so blind to the reality that um you know, we our college ministry we went to memphis every spring break and one thing that they kept getting thrown around around there was um we dealt a lot with racial reconciliation and had people talk to us and and this line that kept getting thrown around was proximity breeds empathy and when you're in the midwest like it can just be really easy to put a lot of people who look like you and believe like you and you're never in proximity to people who believe differently and i think that in a big way that's been Liz and I's marriage, and that's what Mockingbird's done for us is created unity on a front that um, of what really is the main thing and has helped me, helped me especially, um, let loose some of the issues that really probably shouldn't be fought for as hard as we do. Well, that's the thing, man. That's that's the biggest thing we've learned from Mockingbird is not that uh, I don't think I have any, we, we have any answers for how to have a good relationship or, or why things have worked well between us. I just think that Mockingbird has helped us sit in the difficulties of marriage and the difficulties of life and be willing to kind of accept that and know that things are okay. You know, like things don't have to be perfect and that God still, um, God still reigns in that, and He's still really, actually, probably more beautiful in that, and that's um, that's been far more joyful to walk in day by day. Why don't you guys? Would you come to New York next year? We are really wanting to plan on it, and we're trying to. Yeah, we're trying. We're trying I to make sure that, it happens. That will probably happen. Yeah. Make it by any means I got a pocket full of dreams 
All right, here we are on the Mockingcast. Yet again, another week ends and another Mockingcast begins. Joined by one usual suspect, David Zoll, the animating force of the zeitgeist of all we do. What's going on down there in Virginia? Just animating away, as I do. <laughs> you look animated. Your hair is at that. It, it, you're like two weeks away from a haircut, I can uh, tell. Or maybe a week. Yeah. You're coming out of the gene reduction, long hair, svelte face, you look great. And an unusual suspect, although becoming a semi-regular here, it's like a, it's, you're going to move from guest starring to just starring. <laughs> I don't know about that. Sitting in for Sarah Kinder, you have huge shoes to fill. Huge. I mean, you filled big ones last week, even bigger this week. Jeff Holsclaw. Well, thanks. It's great being here. I would like, you know... Because David has this like opening theme that you always say, the animating zeitgeist. He's like a like a close. He should have like theme music, like when the closer comes in for baseball. You should have like a little theme song, like every time you announce his presence on the show. I, I'm just hearing, you know, I'm hearing something. Yeah, well, this I is, like this is not doing good things for my uh, spiritual life. <laughs> See what I like? I like suggestions. Yeah, I like, I'm, he's, I'm a, he's a game. He's a he's a gamer. He's a franchise player. He comes in at a guest spot and is making suggestions for improvements. That's the kind of player we like around this team, baby. <laughs> so, uh, thanks for listening, everybody, and thanks for your generous. Again, we I've been overwhelmed by just uh, responses to financial support, and also for write, people writing reviews, and just overall uh, enthusiasm and generosity with your gifts, your time, talent, treasure, and enthusiasm. So, thank you to our audience, and let's just get into the meat of another weekend's. So first off, David, what if we made this podcast more minimalist? Well, that would be make us more fashionable for 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 sure. Or maybe we're swinging back a, a, away from minimalism right now. But what uh, an article, really fantastic article, appeared in the uh, New York Times Magazine by a guy named Kyle Chaka called "The Oppressive Gospel of Minimalism." Now, if that's not like mocking bait you know i don't think i don't know what is um, hashtag meta yeah give it to <laughs> give, it, give it to me kyle um so it's uh i thought for sure that it was going to be another marie kondo kind of takedown but uh it's not in fact uh it's it's a pretty i don't know sophisticated uh look at how the word minimalism uh has changed and what it used to mean and when it was originally introduced by artists in the 50s it was really a trying to pare down what you were seeing as a as a viewer so that um your interpretation, your associations could be as large and as unlimited as, as, as possible to base, to, to, to control. It seems like the, originally the idea was not to control or to control as little as possible and to see kind of what came, um, what came away from, from that. And then now it is really flipped in a way, um, and become about, um, a very specific uh, understanding of the world. And uh, he talks about how minimalism, you know, meaning people that are trying to throw out everything and saying, I don't really, I don't really aim to own anything. And that uh, I just have my smartphone and my iPad and my keys to my house. And that's, uh, that's it. There's nothing on my walls or whatnot that 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 is a response to uh, maybe overindulgence and, um, the feeling that people have too much stuff, but it's also a very privileged response because it it means that you sort of have a safety net that you don't. Is have that to- paint on your hand? <laughs> 
Why, yes, Scott, and it's white paint because we've been making our house a little more minimalist. Are you whitewashing your your identity? No, we got a we got a baby on the way. So trying I'm to, sorry, like, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I just like because I thought everything you were saying was Zen and profound and spiritual feng shui. But like you, when you lifted up your hand, like it was. So the, again, this is an audio podcast, which everyone knows because they're listening. But David, we do it video Skype, and once in a while, like Sarah's bathrobes. I mean, basically, Scott, describe for us the very nature of that hand that you're seeing. I mean, really get into the paint on the hand. Well, I, I think his his hand is average size. Like it, it. I don't know. He's got I, five I feel like fingers. I've got, I've got nearly Costanza like hands. Don't you think? Yeah, hand model. <laughs> hand model. <laughs> okay. Okay. Enough about that. Let, let me just get back to this because it's it is really interesting. She they talk about how minimalism has really come to be in a, a signal of privilege, um, but also uh, not only is it a response to. A, our anxiety it is it produces anxiety meaning uh, paring down trying to make your life less complicated less frayed is a response to the anxiety but in fact it creates new anxieties um meaning like the uh, kyle writes do i own the right things have i jettisoned enough of the wrong things what if i don't have the right things you know you see there i guess there's a famous picture of steve jobs in the 80s sitting on the floor in a completely empty apartment so it's a really interesting way that how something that is initially meant for freedom becomes oppressive and oppression becomes freedom again over and over and over again we go and sort of we're on this uh, cycle his final lines are too um beautiful to not to read here he says the fetishized austerity and performative asceticism of minimalism is a kind of ongoing cultural sickness by that he means that most of these this minimalistic movement is is meant so that you can be more productive and do more things and in fact ultimately consume more things he says we misinterpret material renunciation austere aesthetics and blank emptied spaces as symbols of capitalist absolution when these trends really just provide us with further ways to serve our impulse to consume more not less i mean oh um (laughs) hope you have a great uh, saturday (laughs) jeff where are you at on consumption like conspicuous or otherwise well uh conspicuous consumption in general we are you know in one sense by nature, we're consumers, just in a material sense, to biological beings, things, of course, right? But I, I don't know. Like, I think uh, as one who I've always considered myself kind of a minimalist at heart, so now I'm like rethinking my whole life. But I always thought of it more of just simplicity and humility rather than kind of like this like grand statements and things. So, but I I guess I view these things a lot like uh, Zizek does the like the political philosopher and critic of capitalism. Where, you know, all these kind of protests against capitalism and protests against consumption just create an opportunity for another niche market to then be exploited with more products and services for consumers. You know, so now instead of uh, having a service to get a bunch of stuff, now you're going to pay for a service to help you get rid of all your stuff. Right. So we just Mm. have all these different things that we just get co-opted, you know, constantly into the system. And so I think, I don't know, I guess like... I guess I resist the the question, like, what do you think of of consumption? It's rather, what are we going to do in the midst of our consumption? Like, because it's not an either or, right? We can't just say, oh, we're not consumers. And that's where I feel like this essay was kind of getting at. Like, well, we can't we can't just be all maximal or all minimal in the things that we have. But rather, what are we what are we doing with them? Can we ask better questions? Yeah, about and that, our that, stuff. 
I, I'm totally with you. I, I like how he zeroes in on the underlying question because it turns out it's just another form of the outside in approach to human change and possibility. And, you know, in our term, sanctification it says, uh, he, he says it clearly. He says, if we attain only the right things, the perfect things and forsake all else, then will we, we will be free from the tyranny of our desires. <laughs> And I, I can, I can relate to that, you know, and I think there, it is, there's a virtue of simplicity. Clearly Jesus wasn't, didn't have a lot of stuff. We have to mm-hmm. acknowledge that. Uh, <laughs> well, you can make loaves and fishes out of nothing. You don't need stuff. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Wedding at Cana. Hey, holler, top shelf, hundred dollar Bordeaux. Boom. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's easy to be minimalist when you're the son of God walking around making stuff out of nothing. Creation ex nilio. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I hope uh, – can you create – can you conjure one of those incredible tank tops you're wearing right now? I can't. That's why I'm I, – that's why I, you know, struggle with simplicity. I'll tell you, though, my Calvin teacher in seminary said, you know, as a Calvinist, I repent of my virtues, not just my vices. And I think, like, I, I'm in the inbox zero, right? So my inbox, maybe 15 emails get in there if I've been away for a few hours. Like, and really not – but I'm not any more productive. I still miss just as many deadlines. I judge other people who don't have inbox zero. I, I'm still like, so I don't think, I mean, I don't think it's a bad thing. And some days it makes me more productive, but I feel like the, the shadow side of it, that's the thing. Like the, there are no panaceas except Jesus who was simplistic because he could make something out of nothing. <laughs> well, before we move on though, I, I brought up the simplicity thing, but I don't, I would want to resist a conflation of simplicity and minimalism because I think the point in Kyle's article was that there's a, this, this uh, trend or this fashion of minimalism has become like a max, a, a new maximalized way of self-expression. And I, th- and I think of simplicity and humility as not self-expression. It's gotten off the train of self-expression. It's gotten off of the train of, you know, of broadcasting what I'm about. It's just, it just is. And so yeah. I, I don't want to conflate the simplicity and humility with the, the movement of minimal, minimalism, which is really just another fashion that people are broadcasting with. That's yeah. quite simplistic of you, Jeff. Let's talk politics. You know, we don't talk politics a lot on this show, but two great articles that appear in another weekend that might make us get become politicos, as they say. Yeah, well, the, they're they're not really even that partisan. What, what's interesting, and we're actually, you know, people might be interested to know that we're missing Hillary's speech at the Democratic convention by recording this on demand, dude, which on demand, which might be, which might be a mercy in itself. But we, um, uh, the Atlantic published something and I was watching the convention yesterday and I noticed this too, an article called Hillary, Hillary Clinton and the reclamation of grace that this word grace keeps on popping up in relation to her. She's, they're clearly using it. They're like, that's the word we want to use to position you and a word that will, 
difficult that doesn't connote um it, it the 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 author of this article talks about how that's a that really does have a sort of a feminine quality when the way we're the, we're talking about a sort of graceful poised equipoise um kind of way of moving and acting and um and apologizing more <laughs> yeah i don't know about that but uh then um but this this word grace is constantly it's see, it's clearly seen as a net positive but um that it's 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 sort of the third leg of the kind of guts and grit and grace which is something that um they're they're playing on and so the article goes through what grace means and saying it's pretty much a shibboleth that you can it means kind of whatever you want it to mean or it changes throughout time even though they're right to say that in christian traditions it has a very pretty specific meaning though you know those of us who are involved in sort of ecumenicism and theology know that people use that word within christendom very differently <laughs> well they get to uh how uh michelle and barack have used that word um in their own talks and they reference of that incredible uh talk that no matter where you are on the presidency and the parties and whatnot the the the, the speech he gave after the Charleston shooting when he talked about the grace of God. And he really, he, he spoke about it in a way that we would very much would recognize. And they sang amazing grace. And um, this sort of grace is the free and benevolent favor of God. That's that you're reading this in the Atlantic monthly as sal- manifested in the salvation of sinners and the bestowal of blessings. That's, that's actually Obama's words. Anyway, I think it's very interesting for those of us who are interested in grace that this is being used or, um, to position a candidate and to, 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 for all of us to bring whatever associations we have to it, because it's, it's clear, it's also probably seen as the opposite of what, um, uh, Trump is about. I mean, he's, you say, say, you say whatever you want about Trump. Grace is not the word that I think of, uh, in terms of like manners and kind of, uh, you know, uh, balance and the way that it's used in that, uh, Grace Kelly kind of way. He seems to be the opposite of that. So they're highlighting that. So yeah, one of the things I thought about Bill Clinton's speech and it, Rachel Maddow immediately, uh, like had this, you know, hey, it's odd and seems anti-feminist to bring up this girl, this girl, this girl. Like, you know, I met – but I felt like actually and, – and Nicole Wallace, a Republican commentator, commentator on MSNBC, said the same thing by and large. I actually thought – you know, they were saying like – he even mentioned the heartbreak of their marriage in the speech. And I actually thought, how humanizing. I mean, it, it, it was this thing where like love is complicated – you know, like where no man, I mean, it was actually, I thought a beautiful picture of grace that Bill Clinton got up and talked about how much better a president and a change maker, how, how much, how much of a better president because she would be a change maker. He was a great candidate and, and you know, in a bipartisan way, you could probably say a decent president, you know, wherever your politics are, but for a guy to get up and I believed him now, maybe that's just cause he's a good politician, but there was a sense in which he he lifted up his spouse as really maybe not the better candidate, but the better person to lead and change. So I thought that was, whether you like like Hillary Clinton or don't, I thought that was a really beautiful moment and a moment that took some humility to folk, to lead with their romance Mm. as someone who was a covenant breaker. Yeah. that's As all, as, as all, as we all are. Yeah. You know, I, my wife can't stand watching the, uh, the, conventions with me because i i, I have uh, my i can't the cynicism really takes over because I, I i watch that speech and i i 
I can't help but feel like they're trying to check a box. Someone said we need to humanize Hillary. So, Bill, it's going to be up to you to do it. And so I always feel so played. And, you know, that, that's, that's partly my issue, I think. But it's, it's also the, maybe the world in which we live in which, you know, what you said is true. And hearing you say it, it's, it's really a, a beautiful view of it. Um, I have this, I feel like I'm, I feel like I've got this remove that I can't get away from where I'm thinking, well, what are they trying to accomplish with this speech? And clearly it is to humanize this person who actually, grace is not a word that people actually, the way that I think about it, there's many things you can say about Hillary Clinton, but grace is usually not what comes to me. So I felt like I was being sold something. And that's, mm-hmm. I, that's what, what is the, that's what the point of a lot of these conventions are. I mean, that, that's their prerogative. It's totally fine that this is what they do, but I, I personally have a hard time, um, Dana, taking it seriously. Live, come live over here with me in the land of naivete. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, just to jump in, I kind of want to agree with David a little bit about the cynicism. Uh, what, well, you know, I have one, I guess, negative thing and one positive thing I could say or add to this is that, uh, let's like, check the boxes. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, I guess the way, you, so I, I, I step way back, you know, and I have like these voices, the theology voices who say that like most of Western civilization is just a parody of Christian theology, you know, so providence becomes the invisible hand of economics, right? And the body of Christ becomes the, you know, political body of, you know, blah, blah, blah. Right? Did you just go meta? Yeah. Yeah, I definitely did. So, but Meta. I feel the same. I feel the same way about grace, though. Is it's like, okay, well, we're just gonna take, you know, this thing that has all sorts of meaning to all sorts of different people, generally positive, and we're gonna slip it in here, and uh, and we're gonna kind of use it to our own, you know, purposes, and you know, we'll humanize, you know, with these different speeches and things like that. And, and so, you know, but but then I think like at the Annunciation, there's like Hail Mary, full of grace, you know, and there's like this sense of Mary and, you know, and certainly of Christ and the humility, you know, it's like, if there's ever a woman full of grace, right, it's Mary, you know, and then it's like, and how is she like Hillary? Uh, you know, so for me, there's just this huge contrast, right? So, but they both the, agreed to bear children. Yeah, certainly. So, <laughs> but, but for the positive side is I would say, you know, certainly as, you know, in Christ, Christian or Christendom circles that I run in, you know, I don't have the connotation of grace as kind of this kind of L, uh, you know, elegance and poise and things like that. But, but it did make me think that it is usually that sense is usually only applied to women. Right. And, mm-hmm. but then I was thinking the kind of grace that we understand is very much kind of out of place also. And so I was just thinking like, is, could we think of grace as kind of a feminine virtue of God, you know, and we don't yeah. usually think in those terms, but that's kind of what this, this kind of, uh, at least in a positive sense, this article kind of turned up for me is, you know, is the grace doesn't really fit into a masculine world, which is why Scott, you know, you're saying that Trump can't be identified with grace because he's like, you know, the most archetypal masculine person. So That's, anyways, those are some of the things that are bouncing around in my brain there. Matt Milner wrote a great piece for First Things a week ago called The Virgin and the Donald. And he talks about in it where when Christendom collapsed and how Mary, tales of Mary as military general were, were slowly replaced with her extended Good Friday lamentation. And uh, in part of the essay, he talks about Gregory of Palomalis, 14th century homilies, which we've all read and speech reading. And, you know, we've all done our June reductions and are doing our beach readings. But Gregory says, you know, the signs of her rule are not that she has at her disposal crowns, such as the masses will never touch, nor choice gems, ornaments and fabrics, nor regal costume different from the attire of common people. Such things were invented for those kings who cannot rise above what is earthly 
and whose clothes reign rather than their souls. Instead, the tokens of her royal power are indescribable graces beyond our comprehension, abilities and energy surpassing nature and directed heavenward. Grace is always a mystery when you find it and leaves you in an ineffable kind of moment in disposition. I always associate grace not with the taking of power, but with the giving with the, with the giving up of it, which I think that when we talk about Mary, I mean... The David, way- if the Democrats want to win, let's say, David, for a minute, let's say you are the political consultant to Hillary Clinton, and she asks... How can, you know, it's it, the horse race is tight, especially in Ohio and Pennsylvania. Surprisingly, you know, Hillary's running all kinds of ads in my home state and in Ohio, and Trump is running no ads, and they're neck and neck. David, how does she turn it around? I know you're not a tribal guy. You're not a partisan, especially on the show or on the blog, but just for a moment, give Hillary a little advice. <laughs> Well, I don't have to because David Brooks took care of it this week in the in the Times as he we, we, he he came out with one of these incredible articles that you sort of wonder where is he getting this stuff? It's is so beautiful. And you're right, Scott. We we are definitely talking more about politics than I ever feel comfortable doing. And um, I hope people will who are not used to it will forgive us. But this 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 was this was quite powerful. What he. Uh, wrote. He wrote an article called Hillary. This is why Democrats are still struggling. He says a lot of things. He said he, he does surface what one of my pet peeves is that, that seems to be the inability to conceive of people's self-interest in anything other than economic terms or materialism being the explanation for absolutely everything in the world. When it just isn't, uh, it's an explanation for a lot. But what he gets to most germane to our project is he says at the end, he says, um, he says, third, if you want to w- win this election, you're going to have to answer hatred with love. I mean, this is a woman who they were, they were, they were chanting, lock her up last week. And, you know, that's, <laughs> if, if, if all of a sudden you've got these like, you know, associations with Barabbas or something. It's crazy. But, um, you're, this is what he, Brooks writes. He says, your tendency so far in your career has been to answer hostility with distrust and secretiveness. You've ended up projecting coldness, but also weakness and hurt. People who build emotional walls amid conflict do so out of fear, not strength. Along the way, you've made yourself phenomenally unpopular. Um, The confident move is to break out of the emotional bunker with vulnerability. The sign of strength is to answer the locker-up enmity with a confident, honest account of what it feels like to be you, embroiled in the political combat, encased in this global celebrity role, but maintaining authenticity in a world that conspires against it. Imagine if you displayed honest self-appraisal and even moments of remorse. You'd have the world rooting for you, not against you. Now, the, some reformational types might say, hold on, we're getting way too, we're, we've crossed the two kingdoms line, like we just smashed it. Uh, but you gotta say like meeting hatred with love what is that Uh, that is grace and to that if we're uh, looking for that we're gonna have to not look on capitol hill i think outside of maybe that that speech in charleston brooks here saying something that's deeply true and who knows maybe uh, would that the whole world could could meet hatred with love not just hillary or donald rather than with dukes up and with scorekeeping jeff Tell us how this fits in Augustine's City of God, book 19. Well, I don't know exactly how it fits. You know, there he's talking about, you know, replacing justice with love as the definition of 
of a city of a, you know a politics and things like that and well, at least that's how it's typically read uh he's actually i think arguing for justice and love being kind of coterminous uh, and maybe that's kind of where you're going david is that you know could a true politics be one where justice and love are united and not always like pitted against each other or is that possible you alluded to the two kingdoms view and you know this kind of sense that you know we can never do these things or Reinhold Niebuhr, you know, his sense that an individual person could be moral, but uh, societies are always immoral. Groups of people are always immoral. So you can't, you know, throw out an ethic of love. You know, you can just have an ethic of justice, something like that. So, so certainly Brooks is, you know, hoping to at least dangle the hope that Hillary could do something more. But, you know, I'm pretty pessimistic, you know, that our, our political, you know, life or world our system just can't, you know, embrace that. And so it's great for people like Brooks and us and maybe others to advocate for these types of things. But I just, I just don't see it happening. And so whether that means, you know, Hillary's going to win or lose the election, I have no idea. But I just, I, the sense of, you know, of really leading with vulnerability uh, for <laughs> those in power, it just seems like it's a total contradiction. And so, I, you know, I, it, uh, so anyways, that's what I'm in with. So certainly, you know, there's hope and there's, you know, the spirit and there's, you know, Christ and his kingdom, but I just, I just don't see it. So maybe I'll be surprised. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it's easier for ex presidents like in the sense <laughs> of like, certainly like my, in my adult life, I've seen a few ex presidents and the great ones, I think have been Jimmy Carter, George H W Bush, Bill Clinton, <laughs> George W Bush. I'm skipping over Reagan. Cause he had Alzheimer's. He was, I mean like it, it, it Reagan, it, it was a tough thing to like, cause Reagan didn't really have, the space to be an ex-president because of health issues. But Barack Obama is almost has early onset ex-presidency, like in the sense of he's generally very gracious and self-aware and does a lot of inventory taking sometimes publicly. And I think like, this is what's interesting. Maybe it's like when you've climbed the top and all of a sudden you're alone because no one shared your experience except this room full of people. I was going to say guys and it is guys, although, Hey, Glass something might be broken, but it's strange how like all of a sudden, you know, I, I heard George W. Bush in an interview a couple of years ago. They said, I, well, wh- what do you think of word associates? What do you think of when you hear of Hillary Clinton? He said, sister-in-law, because he and Bill Clinton have become so close. And I saw it like he huh. and George Bush do a dialogue and Bill Clinton says, Hey man, don't let him fool you. When he does that, goes in that Southern dumb talk. When he does that, I grab my wallet. Cause this guy's sharp as a tag. He does that. Cause he's trying to pull one over on me. And like the way that, like, <laughs> I, so maybe on, on some level, our prayer could be that whoever we elect, they would govern as if they were post president. Yeah, you know, if it, it sounds like the difference between parents and grandparents, you know, like yeah, a grandparents tend to be uh, with their grandchildren just pure beacons of uh, one way love. You know, they just they just spoil you. There's there's almost unless you're with them every day. There's very little discipline, generally speaking. It's just kind of yes, and uh, maybe the parent doesn't have that luxury, so. Um, but I, I salute Brooks for bringing up the possibility or dangling it, as Jeff says, Absolutely. because it is um, it is absurd and it it does run against the grain of our. Uh, but you know, you you see celebrities uh, and or people that have really done heinous things. You see them apologize sometimes, and you can tell when it's just a uh, you know publicist has gotten a hold of them. You can tell when they're really sorry, and and I think um, th- that goes a long way. It always has the opposite effect of what people think is going to happen. Congregation's gone My 
Honest with you, Scott. Like uh, this is what I was thinking when I was reading that Howard Stern article that we were talking about. This sort of the vulnerability that people. Um, but this is this is your subject, so so to, so take it and run, my friend. I, I feel like now I want to hear your reflections on the article. I have so many thoughts on it. Like well, I, I, you know, it's, for those uh, who have been listening, they know that Scott really um, he loves two things in the world, or three things: uh, his wife Lindy, he loves uh, the podcast Unorthodox, and he loves Howard Stern. Now, and Mike, our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, oh yeah, he's on there things. somewhere too. Our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, Yeshua. The the Stern when when you first talked about how much you loved Howard Stern, I thought to myself, you know, this. Is the Howard Stern I remember because I remember the sort of show on E Entertainment. I watched the movie and it just was sort of lewd stuff that I, you know, like you know, it's, it, it, it's candy. You you immediately get drawn into it and it's very kind of raunchy and kind of you know dorm room kind of uh, you know sensibility. But then over and over you'd tell me about these interviews he was having with people that were kind of plumbing the ap- absolute depths and. Um, then this New York Times, and I, I believed you, and you, you would play these things for me, and I think to myself, something about this man's demeanor, something about his style, his age, his experience is giving people, um, is not communicating any law to whoever he's interviewing, to complete safety. And um, uh, then uh, this article comes out in the New York Times uh, magazine profiling him and and how there's this basically this new cult following around Stern uh, where he gives he gets people to say things that they've that are real and vulnerable and that in fact it always it doesn't you see that there's a line in there where he says you know no PR person in the world believes this but if you're to actually hear someone speak from their life what's been difficult what their struggles are at the end of the interview when they said oh yeah I came on to promote this movie you all of a sudden want to go see the movie it's uh, this kind of almost accidental gracious interaction that he's having with these people where with the way that we connect the way that people experience love is always through weakness and uh is, is never through kind of blustered statements and so if you have whatever whatever it is on on the serious radio which is like i don't know how long those interviews go scott but it sounds like they go long enough to really get somewhere and to really get onto the boys in the basement kind of co- can come out and they lead with this story about Bill Murray talking about what is the purpose of life you know I don't want to think about myself because I'm uh, I'm not nearly as wonderful as anyone else thinks and certainly as I think I mean oh my lord this is what's coming out of these celebrities mouths Bill Murray being a special case but Scott Jeff tell me what you thought uh, as someone Baba Booey I'm, I'm conjuring my inner Leah Leibovitz who this week on an orthodox said pointed out that Sarah Silverman was the only person that advocated for Stern fans. She ended her speech at the DNC with Baba Booey! <laughs> Just as a counterpoint maybe to the Brooks uh, commentary on Hillary is it seems like, you know, uh, Stern has, certainly he has a following, he has a platform, he has, you know, in a sense, power. But he doesn't have, uh, he doesn't really have an agenda, but he also doesn't have responsibility for any anyone else, right? And so he's able to enter into vulnerable spaces with himself and to others uh, and and to create an atmosphere. So the question is is how do you how does how does a talk show 
and a talk show host and kind of like our pop celebrity kind of, uh, you know, atmosphere, how does that inform or could it or not, uh, our political lives? Like, is there a way to blend these two where we could have a lot of authenticity or reality or I, I just use authenticity, please edit that out, Scott. I hate that word. Right. But you know, but is it possible to take those postures and put that into our political discourse in America? And my, my hope is, oh, please, that's exactly what we need. The reality is like, oh, that's never going to happen. So, so that's my two thoughts as we shift these from these two, uh, you know, seminal characters here. Yeah. I, I, so I have so many thoughts on this topic and I will try to keep them brief. One thing is I think when, so first off, you know, I knew about this article before it came out, because he was talking about it. And he said, basically, they wanted to interview for him for the New York Times. And he's talking about it in the air. He's like, Robin, I'm like, I hate being interviewed because everything I say is on the air. And then it's a favorable piece. But then what am I going to do? I'm going to sit on there and say, oh, you think I'm a great interviewer? Uh, I Okay, thank you. And, and then he did the interview, actually, because his agent, Don Buckwell, it's been his agent for years, said, Howard, they're going to run the piece with or without your comment. So then he says, well, you know, then like, Robin's like, well, Howard, I mean, looked like a photo shoot, like Sports Illustrated swimsuitish. He's like, well, yeah, this is what happened. I mean, the guy says, yeah, he, he, and he's a perfectly nice guy dealing with an asshole like me on the phone. And I say, come in the night before, set up your stuff at five o'clock. I'm giving you 10 minutes. Right, right. So he's like, Robin, that's why we have to end the show at 11 o'clock. I told him, Tim, I said, you can only shoot me from my right side because I'm so unattractive. What other side could I be shot from? And I brought my sports jacket. No, God, I'm going to have to. And this is a man who says that when he has sex with his wife, who's the former model, he turns all the lights down and backs out of the room so she doesn't see the cellulite on his posterior. So, I mean, so (laughs) that's good to know. Yeah, that I mean, that's my first thought. Like my second thought is, I think he did a Barbara Walters interview or something. One, one of the big interviews, and she said, you know, so Ster- Howard is really sensitive. I say like, like I know, but someday he might be a mocking cancer interview. Ooh, Everybody, that's a tease. Let's all pray there for that. But you know, like basically, he 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 feels like he and his wife get broken up with by celebrities all the time because they invite them out to their house in the Hamptons, and they come out and like they are so bored. They're like the cleavers. Like, hey, we have a little tote bags. They think it's, oh my God, we're going to have to leave the first night. They'll be stripping. And they're just like Warden Jim Cleaver. It's just like, no, so, I mean, there's a cut. So his best friend is Jimmy Kimmel and his wife. And he, he talks about going on vacation with them. And I, I hate traveling. Like, I like it when I'm there, but like the anxiety of packing and just the commute and everything. Like once I'm there, and actually on the plane, I'm okay, but getting on everything. And Lindy, my wife has really helped me with this. But like, he's like, you know, I wasn't a jerk on vacation. I was actually a decent person. What Jimmy and I do, we take romantic walks with our wives. Then we do guy time. We just draw. Like he and I, we sketch things. And he's better at it than I am, but we sketch. So it's, his life is so mundane. And like, So basically, this interviewer says, you know, you're such a nice guy. Who is that guy in the air? You know, this is the real He's like, no, the guy in the air is the real me. Like when I, well, how I got good in radio is I just said whatever was coming to my mind. So you're getting the filtered me with all my social norms and all my fears. And everything. So when I get in the air, I just, you know, I just say what comes to mind on a good day. And that's partially why one of the, one of the things that I didn't like about the article is that he interrupts his guests too much. I think like almost like full disclosure, if there's any critique I've had, well, I have many critiques of myself as an interviewer, but if, if there's something that like would be my number one critique 
I don't crit- I don't interrupt enough. I don't like I there like there I don't there are things I have in my head where I'm talking with someone that I actually wish I had the courage to say. Mm. And I don't like sometimes, sometimes it's like, and, and, you know, we're all like filtered, you know, where's the filter end? Where do we begin? Onions, you know, skins, things like that. But Stern, like he, he the self-awareness about that. And the only last thing I'll share is this. On Pierce, with Pierce Morgan, he had a great interview a couple years ago with Pierce Morgan. And he explained, he said this many times on air, but like he, it was very poignant the way he put it. He said, you know, his father was a type A guy. Immig- children of immigrants just like, you know, hey, Howard, you need to do this. You're a moron. Why don't you do this? Why would you ever want to do this? And he said, you know, my dad wasn't emotionally available and he was a radio engineer. And he said the whole time we were in the car, he was always fiddling with the radio, fiddling with the radio. And I thought if I could get inside that box, he would love me. He would listen to me. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, when my movie came out at the premiere, my father looked at me and he said, you're a genius. And Stern started crying. And so sometimes I think like, yeah, hey, we're all looking for the father's love, man. Everybody's mm-hmm. got daddy or parental or mom issues on some sense. As Frank Lake would say, we're all have different issues with the source of being, which is God. Wow. And here I wanted to interrupt and give everyone a plug for Stranger Things from Netflix. Oh, Stranger Things is good. I don't know if Stern's oh, watching. I could go Stranger, Stranger Things. Stranger Things is Stranger amazing. Things is awesome. And if, if people haven't read what CJ wrote this week, oh, I mean, I'm... Run, Don't Walk. It's so good. But good, Scott, you're making me cry over here. <laughs> Baba Booey. Baba Booey. Stranger Things, invite me on when you talk about it. I'm all for it. Thanks for listening to The Mockingcast. As always, you can find any of the content we referenced on our website, mbird.com. If you like what you heard, please... Drop over to iTunes and give us a rating, maybe even write a review, hopefully a favorable one. Thanks for listening. We exist because of the generosity and enthusiasm of you, our listeners and readers. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you next week.